Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased, no, delighted to announce that we have made it. This is the 25th episode of Technique. Thank you, thank you. Hey, not only is this the 25th episode of the podcast, but it's also a celebration of the fact that until that moment just then, I went 24 episodes without using any sound effects. (laughs) I know, it's great. So, to celebrate, we have an extra special episode of Technique today. So special that you will have to wait until after this music to hear more. Okay, so around four years ago, I met someone via email. And at that time, I would not have expected that we would go on to collaborate with one another. Yet, four years on, and we have run five events together, hosted 25 podcasts, and he has contributed to a number of articles on the website that I've run, createhub.com. It is, of course, my co-presenter, Richard F. Adams. Now, we discussed what we could do to mark our 25th episode, And we decided that one thing that we haven't done up to now is discuss our own work and why we make these podcasts. So that's what this is. In today's episode, we talk about Richard's career and a little bit about mine. We also discuss digital art, including both the challenges and opportunities it faces. Plus, we reflect on why we run these podcasts and the technique events. It gets pretty deep at times, especially when we talk about some of Richard's current artwork which explores the darker side of selfie culture. Yet it's also optimistic as we look ahead to what 2019 could have in store. We also talk a little bit about how you as a listener could get involved. One way, of course, is to subscribe to this podcast and to rate it five stars on iTunes, as that really does help. So actually, why don't you do it now? Come on. I'm waiting. Right. Okay, while you're doing that, let's get started with the interview, which we recorded in IBM London. Where does your interest in art and technology come from? I I was a child who used to take things apart at home, so radios and things like that. Always wanted to see what was inside a box, take the back off a TV or something, electrocute myself. I wouldn't say I'm an electronics person or anything like that, but I was just curious to know how they worked and you could see things by opening things. I had a ZX Spectrum which never really used for programming. I learned a bit of Sinclair Basic, but just used it for gaming. And then in the very late 80s, I got my hands on an Archimedes computer with something called Artisan Pro, which was the first 3D animation program I'd ever seen. And it was in a school, and I was, I was teaching in a school, art, art teaching. I'd just come out of college, and I was teaching art and music. And the music department was very advanced, and every kid sat at a sequencer. And we had Cubase and a recording studio and things like this. Very advanced for a school, very lucky. So I used to use that at the weekend with my friend. We used to record. And then during the week, I'd go down back to the art room and I'd use the Artisan Pro software on this Archimedes computer to make limited animations, 3D animations. And then gradually I thought, 
I can do more than teaching. I just I wanted to do more, and I was still at this point painting. I did fine art as a as a degree. Very early nineties, I, I just decided I wanted to go back to college and do a master's degree, and I found this master's degree at Middlesex, Middlesex University at Cat Hill at the Art College, which I think was the only one in Europe at the time, and it was what people now would call computer arts degree. It was called computing in design at the time. And it had been started in the 80s by a very, very forward-looking man called John Lansdowne. You can find John Lansdowne on the V&A website. There's a whole page about him and the work he did. And now Lansdowne Associates did the original Channel 4 logo in 3D. All of that sort of stuff. Very, very clever man. And he set a department up where it had this little MA running of about 30 people each year. And they were all artists or designers. And they took you in and they spent six months working with you on programming, maths, hardware, anything you needed. And then after six months said, right, you're artists, now go and make art. Now at the time we had the internet, but we had no web, so it's pre-web. To render anything took three, four, five, six days over a VAX cluster. It was incredibly hard, everything was computational. So the first programming language I learned properly was C during that year. I was never a natural programmer and we had lots of help, but nonetheless, you know, sort of understood it. Then in the mid-90s, the sort of digital boom, the online boom kicked in, so and I got uh, offered a job in an interactive TV company making interactive TV games in the mid-90s. So I made about, I don't know, between 10 and 20 interactive television programmes. You know, we worked with things like Mastermind, Family Fortunes, Channel 4 Racing, the Oscars and things like this, and we overlaid interactive interactivity onto those programmes that could be live or pre-recorded, and you could interact with them via a system. This was analogue. And then that took me on a whole strain of things, and, and the next thing I did after that was open a digital arts department in a university, so I, I went there and founded two digital arts degree courses in the late 90s, two master's degrees, one in computer arts and one in composing for games, Set that up, got to about a 1,000 students in three years. And then I moved on and took advantage of the dot-com boom, really, and earned some money and went around companies and earned worked at companies. With digital, now in the background, the art was still going, but I was never really exhibiting. By this time, I'd stopped. But I was still making things, and I've got piles of stuff at home and half-rendered things and on old discs I can't read now. It's just over time, in the last sort of decade, it's come back as something I've been doing more and more of. So... I've gone full circle and I've gone through that journey of earning money and then coming back into producing art. So I'm now back at producing art that is nothing special in terms of any techniques I'm using. I'm painting directly onto a Surface Pro with a stylus. I'm deliberately pastiching previous styles, very expressionist stuff. And I'm exploring the opposites of what it means to be a se- in selfie culture where everybody puts great things about their life up. I'm putting the worst things about your life up as selfies and bringing out the sort of internal angst and things. So very expressionistic, very monk-like, very Bacon, Francis Bacon-like. And then next year the plan is to take that into full augmented reality so that the things are, are actually confronting you in space. It's this whole picture of Dorian Gray thing, that while you're taking brilliant selfies and making your life look fantastic, in the attic there's flesh rotting. So, (laughs) And what's happened, of course, in the meantime, in the gap, is while I've been working away quietly and not exhibiting, I've started exhibiting again. I had a solo show this year 
got another one lined up for next year. Technology's changed, and technology's now become incredibly democratic. That much easier to make things. So I think 25, 26 years back, you know, I was having to learn very advanced maths, proper computational skills, and now I don't have to to make these images. But next year when I get more advanced, I'll be back to the computation stuff. And so I'm very interested in and what I've always seen computers as, and this is interesting because I always did see, even 25 years ago, that when the very first proper art course I did was a classic art foundation course, and on that they taught us how to make paint. You know, what pigment is, what all the media are, you can use the gels, the crystals, all of that stuff. And to me, code is just that. To me, biotech, if you're growing dyes from algae, that to me is just another paint palette. That is all it is. And it's a really, really fundamental shift, but I don't think a lot of people actually get that. I think what they do is they go, wow, this is technology. And actually it's not, it's just paint. And they forget, and I've said it in a couple of the podcasts, actually, to people when we've been talking, that if you look back through the history of art, you realise that actually oil paint was a technology. And look at the impact that had. During the 1300s, oil paint was developed as a technique. And it enabled all sorts of new visual things to occur. Prior to that, in Western Europe, things were painted flat with uh, paint called tempera. And if somebody was behind something, they would paint it above it. And you can see this in old churches and on old friezes. Things would go vertically up the wall rather than in perspective. And that's because they couldn't get any transparency. Now, when they started putting oil into pigment, they found that you could actually layer it and create semi-transparency. So actually, you could take a ball and you could replicate the shading you could see and suddenly, for the first time, make it 3D. And it meant that you suddenly opened up this recessive space that went backwards through a picture. You've got to think of things like that. You know, that is a technology. The invention of photography is a technology that has changed painting fundamentally. It's no coincidence if you look at history that painting changed radically at the invention of photography in the mid-1800s. Once the impact of photography came along, suddenly you got uh, the appearance of the Impressionists because at the same time as photography came along and took some of the realism, if you like, and the romantic stuff you could do with painting, some of the jobs away from that, you also had at the same time scientific learnings about light and colour. And suddenly this whole flowering of creativity came from it. And similarly, throughout you know, all of the Western tradition, we've had these bursts of creativity, and I think we're at another one now. And this is where I'm coming from. I, I actually just view that as the next photography. I view it as... The next thing, but the potential for what we've got now is much, much greater because now, for instance, we've got access to things like neuroscience, biotech, computation, connectivity, and all of these things, whereas before you'd have the invention of oil paint and the combination of that with perspective. But now we have a whole palette of things that are giving us palettes within palettes. There's some interesting things coming up, really interesting things. Like One of the things I've seen on Instagram, for instance, is a movement of hyper-realistic drawing going off. And you think... Why not just take a photograph? But of course, that's not the point. The point is the activity. But it's booming. It's absolutely everywhere, this movement. And it's really strange, because on the face of it, you think there's no need for it to exist. But actually, it's showing you that you can do something that machines can't, or you can be as equally as good as a machine, if you like. And they're occurring because, actually, for the first time as well, artists can now show their work, for good or bad, and accrue an audience through digital means. And artists have never had that. That's not to say the dealership stuff is going away. 
But the point is you can very well make some kind of living showing your work online and selling bits and bobs. You're not going to make a fortune and you won't get the recognition that getting in the National Gallery will give you. And in terms of history and legacy, you kind of need the big gallery system to give you that stamp, I think. But nonetheless, people are pursuing their own work. And I think it's terrific. And what drives me is that still, that curiosity that I started with 40 years ago, where I'd pick up a transistor radio and take it apart and have a look at the circuit board and try and work out what was happening. When it comes to the approach, there is one thing that Richard and I have in common. That is that we both highly value the concept of iteration. Getting started with an idea and gradually changing it over time based on the feedback that you receive. That's what I do in my day job at IBM, for instance. I manage teams of designers and developers through that process. So I love the idea of teams that innovate and who work with agile principles in mind. Actually, that's how these podcasts work too. They will keep changing based on the feedback we get. Richard approaches art in the same way very interested all the time all the work I do is about constant iteration through the media I strongly believe artists are wired to be agile and that businesses miss a trick because what good artists do is iterate continually and they will continually unpick what they've done and then put it back together and then try it again in a slightly different way and then try it again you know each time they get a, a what you might call finished piece that finished piece is not finished at all it's the next set of questions and I, and I guess all of that curiosity, innate, innate curiosity, just drives me. You know, I, I will go into a room and I will pick up something and have a look underneath it, almost without thinking. And similarly, if I feel bad, I use these stuff to sort of work through that badness. If I feel good, I work through it with that. I make music now, you know, I write albums in a way I never could. The stuff was in my head. I learned to write music, I learned to play guitar, all of that stuff. But it's really hard to write that down. I can now render that very easily and I think the questions artistically that you answer arise from the doing not from pre-staging the questions and trying to solve them and I think this is where people get wrong they kind of think oh well there's an intent to something and I think this is where critics go wrong with art if they've never been an artist they always think there's an intent before I'm not so sure that happens very much I think people, the artists they're looking at are often just innately curious and are constantly unpicking things and the intent actually emerges from the process. The one key thing about the social media decade that we've had the one thing that's emerged is the selfie culture. Bizarre. whole culture that's emerged of that. You know, from the sex tapes through to the photos of holidays, to people holding hands and photographing each other, to the thousands of tourists queuing up to go on the edge of the rock in Arizona to take that photo as if they're hanging off the rock. All of that sort of stuff. It's all about presenting an idealised view of the world to everybody else. So you're a romantic, because that's obviously what the romantic artists did. Caspar David Friedrich, the famous painting of the moody guy looking over the misty mountains in, I forget the name of it, 1830 or whenever he did it. Very romantic stuff. You want to be there. You can sort of feel the wind in your hair, the, the Heathcliff moment, all of that sort of stuff. And it's almost like a neo or quasi-romantic movement, the selfie movement. Because everything you do is making you look good. Very rarely do people post how they're really feeling until they snap. 
and then everybody goes, oh, dear love, you talk to someone, all that sort of stuff. But most selfies are idealised romantic versions. Mine are taking the stuff we're not putting in the selfie to the equal extreme in the opposite direction. So for every fantastic, smiling, beautiful pair of people stood on an amazing landscape in China, I've got a wizened old crone who's decaying, which is actually all me, because it's a selfie, it has to be. So all the things I've been doing are me. But, you know, the great thing is I don't have to wait four days for the oil paint to dry. That's what computation's given me. I can really crack on and work very quickly in a way that selfies also are taken very quickly. Although the technologies have changed quite a lot, and maybe some of the influences, so selfies being an influence, have made different outputs, but actually, do you think people are creating different kinds of art, really? Honestly, I don't. I think, I think what's happened is it's just like pop music. If you listen to pop music, I think you've got a precursor to the current visual social culture in the 50 years of rock and roll, in that you started with something that emerged from previous form, blues, jazz, and gradually a canon of work built up and now it's being plundered constantly because of sampling so, and streaming. So now, if you talk to a teenager, they'll listen to all sorts of stuff. Stuff that's 40 years old, stuff that's 60 years old. They're listening to stuff that's four days old. They're listening to stuff by famous people, by independent artists. They're listening to things by their friends. So they've got access to all that library of music. And I think similarly with art now, what's interesting is you've got access to that entire library and you can mechanically do what they did but much easier so when Warhol was doing all this screen printing it's now much easier to do Warhol style images you can do it through with a filter you don't even need to screen print so the barrier that you had to go through to learn a craft has gone I think it's the same as well with looking at art as well the way that you experience it has probably changed too so I heard someone saying recently about music that there was time where you might listen to a song on the radio, you might not actually get to hear that song for a long time. Again, you, you may purchase it in a store eventually, or you might not even have the opportunity to do that. And therefore, when you're listening to that song, there's a chance that you're taking it in as if you may never hear that again. And so the way you're experiencing is a lot more present. And I think in general, there's a lot of talk about people not being as present in what they're experiencing. People are on their phones or they're scrolling through various social media channels or they're multitasking. They're looking at their phone while watching a film while doing something else. I think scarcity is a terrifically interesting thing. It was very scarce, and certainly when you had vinyl records, and one of the reasons I think vinyl records are back is, is the answer to this question from my point of view, that it was an event actually putting a record on. You had to physically engage with it. And then once you'd made that effort and stood up and turned the thing over or put the needle on, the effort you'd made putting it on meant you'd sit down and listen to it, but properly listen. And I think music's now no longer scarce. Like you say, I think that's a really fundamental point. There's no scarcity. So there's no sense of occasion about any of it. And you can see the same in TV, that a lot of TV now is just endlessly churned repeat things with punctuated by event television. And they're creating events that are special, that even though they know you're going to be able to watch again, you feel special because it's live, they've made it live. Whereas 
The music, of course, that, that's a little bit harder, but it is no longer scarce. You're absolutely right. And scarcity is a very interesting thing, or lack of. There's no scarcity in music, there's no scarcity in TV, and there's no scarcity in art. And this is what people like Damien Hirst, to a large extent, began to sort of exploit and understand. Their work lived in the media, and there was a very low level of craft and very low level of anything else. You know, the shark had to be replaced periodically. But now, of course, you know, the Banksy, the shredding, which was clearly all a set-up and very, very funny and well done, but, you know, it was clearly a fully staged event. Those sorts of things reflect quite well on the fact that it's scarcity because suddenly this expensive artefact became something we're all used to seeing, which is endless shredded paper in offices. Yeah, you know, he was addressing that himself and saying, actually, it's not scarce. The ironic thing there, of course, is it doubled in value immediately. What's also happening is people are turning to experiences more. I think the other part of that is when people do go to a gallery as well, that is a different experience from browsing through something online. The thing I've noticed as well when I go to exhibitions, sometimes there is work there which is quite surface level and it might be something that's quite interesting technologically but maybe isn't actually that engaging. And so you, you go through and you look at some stuff and you go, yeah, that's, that's all right. And you, you carry on. And actually, there's an opportunity for those galleries and to play on the experience a lot more and because people are much more in the moment. Well, that's, when the that's what I'm saying about the TV, you see. TV's gone the same way. There's so many channels, so many opportunities to watch video content now across YouTube, across television, across anything that nothing's scarce. If you want to watch an old clip of a 70s sitcom, it's there usually, you can find it. So they create events like Britain's Got Talent and I'm a Celebrity. And that's where it keeps people loyal to the channels, the events, and they are punctuating the stuff. And similarly, I totally agree with you that galleries now need to, if they're not already doing, become the equivalent of those TV shows providing events. And I, I also totally agree with you that a lot of the digital work I see in galleries, well, the best way of putting it, I, I suppose my response is, somebody said to me that it's very clever, a lot of it, but where's that gump that you get from a, a piece of art that makes you cry? Most of it hasn't got it. A lot of the digital and computational stuff and this, that and the other is very clever and often incredibly pretty. You know, some of those artistic visualisations of flight paths and things like that are beautiful to look at. But there's no emotional heft behind them. Now, television, with event television, does that. You watch I'm a Celebrity, you watch Britain's Got Talent, they put all the backstories in, they make you cry with the stories about the gran. They overdo it, but they do it. They manipulate the story to make you feel something. And I don't think that a lot of people who are playing with computers and technology for art purposes have actually mastered the technology enough to make you go whoomp and they haven't mastered the language side of art more to the point and that goes back to the point I was saying in that long diatribe I gave earlier uh, about my philosophy is that understanding that language suddenly has unlocked the ability to make people feel uncomfortable with, with work and a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment I'm getting reactions of people being very uncomfortable with it 
because it's it's hitting home and, and I'm able to use the language to say this is a bad feeling. And I think a lot of the digital and computer art and tech art that I see lacks that warmth. There's a geeky warmth to it sometimes where you go, wow, look at the numbers, the way the numbers are working to make that happen. But that's similar to the thrill I got from opening a radio 50 years ago, 40 years ago. You know, just seeing how things work. It's not actually emotional impact or resonance. And to me, there's no point to doing art without emotional resonance. And this is why I think all these people who fear things like AI are mistaken. It's just a tool. It, it will be a very long time before an AI thinks for itself. A very long time before we invent another real intelligence. But it will happen, but it will be a very long time. And most of the AI people in the next generation are going to encounter, all it is is super smart machinery that can unpick some of the craft factors and the, the ways of doing things for you, and it can help you do things that you couldn't do without it. But you've still got to make it go woomph. We were just talking earlier, weren't we, about the painting that the AI produced that was sold in, a, in a, an auction. And you look at that painting, it doesn't move you. It's not even art because there's no human intent. It's an image. And I don't think people realise there's a difference between a piece of art and an image. The visual literacy hasn't sort of kept up or caught up yet. It will. I think it will. But people are, people are using the technology without thinking about the intent quite so much. And they'll always say, yeah, well, I bloody am this, that, and the other, and they'll disagree with me. Well, fine, disagree with me, but I... I can't see it. When I see AI stuff, and remember I've worked with AI professionally, so I do have some understanding of AI from the day job, that it isn't producing anything that's, that has that emotional resonance. It's bloody clever, but what's the point of producing facsimiles or pastiches if you don't even know it's a pastiche? Yeah, I think the, the other thing is there's, there's an opportunity with AI and some of these other technologies to create completely different content. Yeah. And I think that's why I asked the question before, do you feel it's the type of content that's changed much? Because it probably hasn't. I saw a... No, I don't think it has. I, <clears throat> I, I agree. I think it's this notion of we've computerized existing things and we haven't quite taken the step into what is uniquely technological that it can offer us that is only unique to those media yet. It's coming. I saw a piece of art couple of weeks ago at a exhibition at goldsmiths and it was it was a exhibition of current students i believe but one person that did create something that created a response in me which was i i laughed but i was laughing with the piece of art i felt was that what they'd done is they'd used an ai to look at various different court cases or political presentations where stats were being overly used. And there wasn't a lot of information about this piece, but I straight away understood what it was trying to say because what they trained the AI to do was, this is how you understand what a number is. Right, here's loads and loads of footage. Go extract the people talking about numbers. And it's reels and reels of people just spouting numbers, 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 numbers. And it was actually really impactful. I can see exactly what you're saying. You're saying we're being blinded by the amount of numbers and these numbers are a distraction. And actually, it had exactly that effect. And I felt it was something that probably could be done by 
a person, but would take so long. Whereas by using an AI to do it, as, as long as they'd written that, they could put any footage in there and create something straight away, and it was impactful. Well, I, I, I think that's terrific. <clears throat> but I mean, I think that, that's an interesting thing, because humour's an interesting thing. Um, in a way, humour is the easiest thing to put into work. And I think this goes back to, you know, the birth of conceptual art and things like, you know, Manzoni's artist shit in a tin. You can't help but laugh. Nobody knows if there's anything in those tins or what's in the tins, you know, and that's, that's why you laugh. And people feel uncomfortable laughing because it's sort of art, but actually it's made to laugh. The Banksy thing recently was about making you laugh. I dis- I, I'd like to actually, even anonymously, have a chat with Banksy about that because I'm convinced that was meant partly as a major joke because actually it was too well set up as a joke to not be a joke, if you know what I mean. While making a very serious point, it's satire, but highly humorous, and it's, it's a bit easier to put humor in. And I think with something like that, where numbers are colliding, people on TV have done very similar things. If you think back uh, to satirical programs like uh, Brass Eye and The Day Today, which were fake news but satirical, Chris Morris would very cleverly just combine words that meant nothing. That for all the world sounded like somebody was saying something on Newsnight, but actually it was it was nonsense. You know, something like you've just described is embedded in that tradition of satire. And I think it's an obvious channel to go down, pulling the humour out, but I don't think a lot of people put humour into it. But it is a way of communicating. But what what is what they're finding very difficult to do is the stuff that makes you cry, or the stuff that makes you feel overwhelmed in the way that some of the great religious pieces made people. Certainly at the time they were done, overwhelmed. And I think he was a great way in, I really do. And it will come. I mean, this stuff will come. You know, it's just we're at the birth of something completely different at the moment. You know, there's certain things. When you look at throughout the history of art, you see an old Rembrandt, a self-portrait from when he's an old man, and you look at his eyes, and he's so sad when you look at the eyes. And you can see the sort of roominess of the eyes and all of this sort of stuff. And you just think, oh, God, that guy was sad. He'd been forced to spend his life working for patrons and all this talent, and his life was coming to an end. And he painted this thing, and you can just see it in the eyes. And I, I don't get any of that from computer art at the moment, or vast majority of it. Some you do. You're starting to, like you say, it can make you laugh, it can make you this, that, and the other. But that sense of sadness. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do with my own stuff, but it's funny that... In order to do that, I've had to kind of go back to traditional techniques, just rendered through computer, use painting techniques, but with computer-synthesized natural media simulators. And instead of spending four years building an AI to do it, I'm using my own intelligence to do it. Digitally, and we met around Create Hub, the website. And at that point, you were interested in writing more about process. Mm. And then, when we've come to doing these podcasts and running some events under the name Technique as well, actually, that's been a lot more about process. It sounds like you're very interested in process in general, but actually, what's been the reason for wanting to? 
look more at that over the last few years from your point of view? Well, the great thing about the podcasts in particular and what I've enjoyed, and one of the things I've sort of enjoyed, the fact we've worked out a, a nice way of doing it between us where we do one sort of alternate, alternate ones and there are two of us doing them and we get a slightly different view on things. Because, no, you know, nobody's view is less valid than anyone else's, but it's allowing me to reflect. So when I've talked to people, you know, you reflect on things and that reflection is a key part of the artistic process. And I think it's tied into the fact I've started making again, properly. Artists gathering groups and they talk about work and things like this. And this is a way of doing the same thing, but in a slightly more contemporary way, really. I interviewed John Pettigrew, who's the guy who was broadcasting art to the stars. Now, he's not an artist. He never claims to be. He's interested in, he's interested in the process of you know, how you can monetize it and how you can sell it. He's interested in the commercial side of it. But he's still doing this thing about broadcasting art to the stars, and I'm very interested in that. Well, what, why would someone want to do that? And then you think, well, in all those interviews, they'll say one or two things that you think, oh, God, yeah. You know, and, and, and talking very heavily, I've talked to over the years, Paul, Paul Weir, I talked to about music, and Paul's an old friend who I've known for donkey's years so we've talked many many times over the years again even talking to an old friend like that in a formal situation when you're interviewing and having a conversation that you know is being recorded therefore there's a formality they say things that you have forgotten they knew or that you didn't expect or that trigger a thought in your own head so every single one of these podcasts is a chance for me to go, okay, well, let's test my own thinking on this. Other people have got, you know, possibly more valid viewpoints than I have. You know, it's testing, it's testing, it's proving, it's testing. It's, it's the same thing I said at the start, that you're picking something up and you're looking underneath it. So you get somebody in a room and you have the chance to say, well, why? And we started, we made a choice with these podcasts, didn't we, of saying, okay, well, let's concentrate on process Partly because there weren't many podcasts around that actually talked to artists about their process within using computation and things like that, technology. Lots of things around where they talk about technology. Lots of things talking about art. But nothing about the process, the creative process, the artistic process. And that was fascinating for me because it helps me absolutely reflect on my own. And there are not enough books out there at the moment that do the same thing. You know, I still think we could make more money by transcribing some of these podcasts and actually publishing them. Because actually there are very few books that talk in this way about the artistic process and how these, this new technology... Some of the stuff we've got coming up, where we're going to be talking to craftspeople, for instance, about things like biotech and making dyes and organic dyes from algae and all of these things. Oh, God, how fascinating, you know. This takes me straight back to the days when I was making paint with crystals and gels and pigments ground from flowers in a, in a mortise and pestle. The, the fact that you've now got somebody growing algae in order to make dye that glows in the dark. To me, that it's not a very big step from making paint to that. And making paint was what people were doing 2,000 years ago. So there's all of that sort of stuff. And when you get the chance to interview these people you actually suddenly get more of a sense of history as well and context on your own work. Because, yeah, I've read a lot of books, you know, and I've contextualised my own work, but it's a very solipsistic thing to do if you're not careful. 
and all you get is your own view of things. And when they say, no, I'm doing this because, you suddenly go, okay. And this, again, I think traditional art critics lose the plot a little bit because they're often going for the, the linguistic side of what's going off and the symbolism. And sometimes the joy of art is the process. In fact, a great deal of the joy of art is the process for the artist. And so just seeing that validated, you know, and that's what these podcasts have done. And I think the direction we're going, you know, where we're going to do more craftspeople who are working with advanced technologies of all kinds of things. I'd like to do a couple on neuroscience, you know, stuff like that. If anybody out there listening wants to help, you're welcome. But all of those things are the new forms of paint that people can work with. And that helps me decide where I want to go next. So my own work, I've been doing these computerised paintings. Next year, they're going to become augmented reality paintings. And that's come about through reinforcing the notion I had 25 years ago about taking cubism and adding time to it and then adding interactivity to it, which is what I did. And, and I think all of the things we are we have talked about and the things we are going to talk about over the next couple of years or whatever will help me validate my own work. I think that's all it's about. It's about getting that other voice and hearing the reflection or not hearing the reflection. So I, I think all artists need to do that. And I think sometimes that's done down the pub. Sometimes that's done in the studio because you pop by to talk to someone. In this case, I'm lucky enough to meet some incredible people doing really radically different things. And I've got the chance to sit with them for 45 minutes and ask them why. But yes, we focus slightly on the process, but that's because these are new tools. And I'm very interested in how the new tools are unlocking extra levels of creativity and different viewpoints. And they're enabling a businessman to shoot art to the stars at the same time as they've enabled people to make endless music. Yeah, for me, it's similar. It's about... It's a curiosity into why people do some of the creative things that they do. And so having an opportunity to go and speak to people about what they're doing and why they do it and how they do it and what got them started. And I've realised that no one is going in there saying, actually, I know in 20 years' time I want to be creating this kind of work or I want to be doing this kind of thing. Nor could they, because who knows quite what the world looks like in 20 years time but having an opportunity to go and speak to those people and using it as an opportunity to actually get a little bit further under the skin when meeting them means that it serves to help me understand their creativity but also it builds a really interesting relationship with that person so a lot of the people that I've been interviewing so far some of them are people that I knew already mm. some of them aren't people <clears throat> I knew particularly well before but actually I feel that I do know now even if we only really spoke for an hour hour and a half maximum and that was our only encounter because I know that actually they'll reach out to me about other stuff in the future I'll probably speak to them um, I had a one of the podcasts that I recorded was with an artist called Layla Johnston who she made this similar mm. point. She'd been recording podcasts for a few years and she was saying that actually a lot of the people that she has interviewed have become collaborators with her after that point. From my point of view, you get to know a little bit more about that person than something at quite a surface level just by that formalised 
process of being in a room talking on a podcast and it being a little bit more serious and therefore you're talking more seriously about what they're doing and why. In terms of personal discovery, I think the podcasts have been great. I mean, I've probably learned more than the listeners have, but, you know, I know it's really gratifying that we're actually now building an audience properly. It, absolutely that. And this is the, you know, it's this innate curiosity thing of how other people work. And I kind of want to understand how other people are trying to make things that make you go, you know, when you see it or interact with it. Or, you know, there's, there's so many interesting people out there now. And the technology has just opened up the ability to do so many interesting things. And we are only just starting to do really genuinely novel things with the technology. How about you, though? I mean, you're in the corporate world. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, well, no, no, no. This is interesting because actually you're interviewing highly creative people. and I mean, artists, creative people. And yet here you are at a big corporate. Do you think there's been any impact on any of the work you've done here or are you not allowed to sort of let it impact in that sense? I think it does impact some of the work I do at IBM. My view is that over time, a lot of these, particularly some of the tech firms, are having to engage more and more with society in general because I think what they're doing is becoming more complex but it's also impacting people's everyday lives much more and so my view is that actually there will be more of a need to have relationships with different parts of society artists included in that and have more conversations with artists in the same way as they need to have more conversations with philosophers, historians, academics, whoever. And that's probably what keeps me involved in the corporate world because I see myself as being someone that can open up the doors and help bring some of those people in and have more of that conversation. And I think the the reluctance around doing that comes from both sides. I went to a conference by a company called Future Everything, which is an artistic-focused company, They're a collective, I think they would probably describe themselves as. And at that conference, it was mainly independent artists. And at the end of the conference was a panel discussion. And there was a question raised about whether or not it was a time for artists to be talking more with technology companies. And there was a real divide in the room in terms of people that felt that actually the role of them as an artistic community was to stand up to those companies and actually point out where there are problems and be a completely separate entity. And then there were people saying, actually, that's not going to work. We need to be engaging with those those organisations. And as someone that was at that conference, and my ticket was paid for by IBM, (laughs) and I had IBM on my badge, that made me sit there feeling quite awkward because I knew I had IBM on my badge. And most of the conversation in reality wasn't about IBM. People were talking about Facebook or Google Hmm. or Apple or others. But I I really feel strongly that there is an opportunity to talk more. And I think that the technology firms are made up of people, and most people will want to create a better society. And so 
actually there's an opportunity to be creating almost a manifesto for those companies. What kinds of work should we be doing? There's always going to be a commercial element to it, but actually there's an opportunity to have more of those conversations, especially when it comes to new technologies. We're starting to look at blockchain a lot more or there's a huge amount of artificial intelligence work being done. There are plenty of areas where there are opportunities to use those technologies, but actually some of that will create a better society and some of it probably won't. And I think there's that's where I see myself as having a role going forward. Well, you become a moderator to a large extent. That's something I've thought about quite a lot, that as technology in companies changes and enterprise technology becomes smarter and this and the other, it's going to need humans simply to moderate it. Because actually it is a long, 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 long way away before computers will actually genuinely think for themselves. You know, it's going to be 100 years before they solve the cup of tea test with a robot, where a robot can walk into a strange apartment, find tea and make a cuppa. In the meantime, all this machinery, all these new things, new processes we're using, are going to have to be moderated and made human. Otherwise, nobody's going to be interested. So I think the other thing that we wanted to talk about was actually what's next for this, these podcasts, but also for the events as well. And we've been talking about doing more events. I think the combination of doing podcasts where it is very much a one-on-one conversation is great, but actually there are opportunities of bringing more people together, of people having a shared discussion about a lot of the things that we're talking about on these podcasts. So from my point of view, I want to do more of that next year. I think there's also opportunities to work with other organisations more as well to, one, help grow the podcasts um, and those events, but also to be able to have these be more embedded with, within... Well, I think bringing these the conversations to be more... Bring them to the audiences where they need them. You know, I think there's an element of that, and I agree with you totally. I mean, it's going to be great, actually, doing more events with different people. Any, any organisation out there who wants to do an event should contact us. And the other part of that is all of this is done free, and it's done in our spare time and so the quality of the recordings aren't always going to be the best the editing isn't always going to be best the events that we put on they might not have the most professional structure but actually I think there are things that personally I'd like to improve on and I think going into next year and beyond if there are opportunities to use better recording equipment I tweeted recently that actually if there are studios out there that we could record some of these podcasts in that will only make better output. But also in terms of events, if we're looking to put some of these talks on, how can we be part of other events or be giving talks and presentations or building conversations at venues that want to have these conversations that this is part of their general programme. So if anyone out there is listening and they think they could help with any of those things, and they think some of this conversation is useful, then personally I'd appreciate it. Yeah, we can run corporate events. I mean, the great thing about our events so far is they've been stuffed with actual practitioners and people who care. Yeah, I think that's the other thing. I think people are generally quite reluctant to give feedback in a... People are comfortable sometimes giving positive feedback, but actually criticism too, and actually that is a gift... And it is something that helps create better events, better podcasts, uh, helps us build a better community as well. So I think that's something that as much as we say 
give us a five star on iTunes, give us a rating that helps actually get a bigger audience. There's no problem in DMing us on Twitter, giving us Absolutely. some feedback there, um, or contacting us through the Create Hub website because actually that only helps make this better. And I think that's what we want to do. I'll tell you what we should do next year. We should aim to take from every podcast and every event one learning, and from those 15 or 20 learnings, create a manifesto and go on the rampage with the manifesto. That's, uh, that would be a good aim for next year, I think. 2019, the year of the manifesto. <laughs> but there is something to be said for marshalling your arguments like that and, and starting to build pressure and change culture and all of that sort of stuff. I think manifestos are great. I think we're lack, art world is sadly lacking manifestos at the minute. The 20th century was full of them. Oh, not enough manifestos, you're right. <laughs> Well, that's our 25th episode. When we started, I wouldn't have expected us to have made 10 podcasts, let alone 25. So thank you, everyone, for listening. It is really encouraging to see the number of listeners increasing. And it's good to know there's an interest in the process behind digital art. We do have one more episode for the year, of course. So look out for that. Also, we'll be planning some events in 2019, so make sure you subscribe and keep listening to find out when they will take place. For now, I want to thank Sean Miller for the music that he created for these podcasts and to Derek Clegg for the last song, as well as, of course, Richard for being part of this episode. In the meantime, thank you again for listening and we will speak to you again soon. Take very good care of yourselves. Bye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. <laughs>